Welcome to Advisor Talk with Frank LaRosa. Brought to you by Elite Consulting Partners, it's the only podcast offering unfiltered guidance and direct advice for all things concerning financial advisors, RIAs, and the practitioners in the wealth management business. Learn more and subscribe today at EliteConsultingPartners.com slash podcast. And now, here's your host, Frank LaRosa. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Advisor Talk with Frank LaRosa. I am your host, Frank LaRosa. Dressed a little casual today in my elite swag, as you can see. Again, this is Advisor Talk, as the sign says, above my money tree. Now, today I'm excited because I have a, a special guest that I've wanted to be on the show for a while now. And just because we're all so busy, it's been a work in progress, but we're excited we're here today. Today I have Desiree C., who's the president and CEO of SagePoint Financial, which is an independent broker-dealer that's part of the family at Advisor Group. So Desiree, welcome to the show. I'm, I'm really excited to have you on. Thank you. I'm really excited to be here. I appreciate the invite. Awesome. So for those that are listening, by way of background here, a few months ago, I, I've been working with Advisor Group at The Parent for a while, but Desiree and I had never really had a chance to meet each other with SagePoint. And we were at an event a few months ago in Scottsdale. They brought on the president of SagePoint, and I didn't really know anything about you. And then I heard your story and I'm like, oh my God, this is amazing. And I think I was the one that asked you this hard question about, well, why SagePoint, right? And we'll get into that a little bit later. But when you started talking about your background, that was what caught me. And I was like, I need you to be on the show. So without stealing any of your thunder, maybe just tell my listeners a little bit about your background as a producer there are not that many of them in the industry that are in your roles that started in this business as a producer. So give us some color on your background. You know, I started off early in my career in kind of a segment of financial services. When I was 19, I opened up my own bookkeeping business, an accounting firm. And I primarily did that because back in those days, construction and building homes, custom home builders were kind of a niche market for me as my family has been involved in the construction industry for most of my lifetime. So I got into that portion of the business and ran my own business. So being an entrepreneur was always something really important to me. And my husband and my financial advisor at the time came to me and said, you'd be so good in this business. And at that moment in time, I had a small child. I was pregnant with my second child. And I thought, there's no way. I was hiring somebody to do that for me. I didn't even know what a mutual fund was which is kind of embarrassing to say, but it's very true. I just didn't grow up with that knowledge. It was all about running your own business. So then when I found out that I could run my own business, that it would be my own clients, I could set my own hours, I decided, okay, I'm going to go all into this. And so in 1999, I became a financial advisor with Waddell and Reed. And I spent about three years with Waddell and Reed, and it was the only financial services company that I knew of. But one of the things that I appreciated and became very passionate about at Waddell and Reed is they focus on financial planning first, back when financial planning was not as popular or wasn't defined as it is today. And I always joke around about how in the financial planning process, we use this old system called UNET, and it literally was the black screen with the green writing, that basic DOS program, which is really funny. And we'd send the paperwork back to home office and they'd create plans, which Really probably wasn't the best way to do it, but that's the way they did it. And I used to hear people say to me, oh, well, you'll go independent. But I was so passionate about the planning. I'm like, oh, I'm 
with Ellen Reed is it. And it only took me about three years to realize that I wanted true independence with not a limited shelf space of product. And in 2003, when independent with Sun America Securities. And so Sun America Securities was owned by AIG, an advisor group at the time. And I joined a firm called Willamette Financial Group. Shortly after joining that firm, I became the CCO and Chief Operating Officer and also a partner in the firm. Began to really focus not only on my own client base, there was less of a focus there, but more of a focus on bringing advisors into the business, teaching them with a financial planning step forward first. And I really struggled probably about two years in because I was so passionate on helping clients at a very niche market, but I was really passionate about helping advisors too. And then I coupled that with how frustrated I used to get with the firm or the broker dealer at the time, Sun America Securities. And we had an independent RIA because back in those days, Sun America was very limited in the RIA space. So we formed our own independent RIA. We felt that that would be the best route to go. So we continued to build the business. I continued on with my client base, having passion, strong passion in both areas. But what I found was helping advisors grow their business. It got me giddy, just like helping my clients. So in 2008, there were three of us primary partners, and we decided to sell our firm. And we sold our firm to an organization in Wisconsin. And I was kind of at a crossroads of what to do next. I sold my personal client base to a couple of junior advisors in the business. And I was kind of at this crossroads of do I start all over again with working with clients or because to be candid, how frustrated I was with not understanding the inner workings of the broker dealer and their limited kind of offering on the RIA space. I thought, you know what? Maybe I should go on that side of the business where I can begin to affect change and be the true voice of the financial advisor as a customer. So I decided to go on the corporate side. And realistically, it was my first corporate job, which was completely eye-opening to me, the politics in the corporate world. It's just, it's fascinating. I don't know anything about that. Yeah, no, not at all. (laughs) I've always led with if this was my own business, what would I do with it? And I've always been remote. So even on the corporate side, I've never had to go into an office day to day. So it's never really felt like a true corporate job. I mean, yeah, there's some politics involved, but I've been given the autonomy to, you know, work how I feel I should work with the advisors impacting their clients. It happened to be with Royal Alliance when I went on the corporate side and I was there for about five years. I started out as a supervision regional vice president on the West Coast or the Pacific Northwest primarily, and then expanded to all of the West Coast. And within about 18 months, I then led the entire field supervision team at Royal Alliance. Being there for about five years, I left and went to Charles Schwab. I call it my sabbatical. I was with Charles Schwab for about four months. And About two weeks after leaving Royal Alliance, I got a phone call from Erica McGinnis, who was the CEO of Advisor Group at the time, and Jeff Ball, the CEO of SagePoint, that said, we just really need you to come back. And my passion was really surrounding the business side of things. I think my knowledge when it comes to the regulatory environment and compliance and supervision 
has really helped me on the business side because as you assess risk, you have to take into account the business risk. And what is the missed opportunity and the opportunity cost if you're creating a policy that has to do with something that you're trying to eliminate risk on, but you can't. So I came over as the head of business development here at SagePoint when I left Schwab and was in that role for about five years. When I took that role on, I had built out a program to kind of change the structure of business development. And I think it was probably within, I want to say, two months, Lightyear bought us, which then completely blew that up because we went from being owned by an insurance company to private equity. And that's a whole different messaging and comfort level for advisors. So being in that role for about five, it was right at five years. And then I've been in my current role as president and CEO for, wow, this is going on, what, 17 months. So that's my background and story. <laughs> that's how you got here. So, you know, it really gives you some interesting perspective on a lot of different things on the business as a whole. And I think that having someone in a leadership position that was an advisor, maybe you still hold yourself out as an advisor, it's still in you as an entrepreneur. But then also as sort of this risk side, because as a business owner, you always have to assess risk with everything. Some people don't like to hear that, but that's just like, you know, risk is about protecting your franchise and protecting your business. So why wouldn't you focus on risk? For our audience that isn't as familiar with advisor group, you mentioned Lightyear. My firm was working with advisor group during that period of time. So I'm, I'm familiar, but maybe just give a brief description of who advisor group is aside from SagePoint, but who advisor group is, what's this relationship with Lightyear that you're talking about? And then we'll sort of maybe get into how do you think you guys are positioning yourselves or what's going on in the markets today and maybe segue to some of the improvements Maybe I'm leaving the witness here, but some of the improvements that you're getting to see with your partner Lightyear coming on board and putting money into technology and different things like that. So who is Advisor Group? Who's Lightyear? And how are they helping you? We were purchased by Lightyear in 2016. But since that time in 2019, we've been purchased by Reverence Capital Partners. So we are now part of Reverence, not part of Lightyear, but Reverence is a private equity firm as well. When I look at advisor group and partnership, to give a little background on advisor group, we have currently within advisor group, six wealth management firms, and then we have what we call four advantage companies. And so what we've really done and what I feel we have, I would say, probably much further along in the industry than most independent firms that are trying to focus on a shared service model or have multiple firms built in, is I really feel that we are close to be in perfect on the shared services side. So we have been able to bring all of these firms together, but then have back office support that is consistent across the board and utilizing economies of scale when it comes to pricing, when it comes to technology, when it comes to investment in capital. So instead of having six back offices you have to deal with or six different technology platforms you have to deal with, everybody is sitting on that same chassis. The other thing that, in my opinion, that is really great is each one of the six wealth management firms have dedicated individuals to that wealth management firm. So, for example, the president and CEO is specific to that wealth management firm. So here at SagePoint, being me, you also have your recruiting team that is specific to the wealth management firm, your field supervision team 
your broker-dealer compliance, your RIA compliance, and then your business development teams or relationship management teams. And where I find that to be most powerful is that you do have the broader organization. We have approximately about 2,100 employees that support over 10,000 advisors across the six wealth management firms, but yet you have dedicated resources and relationships with people on a day-to-day basis that you can rely on. And I think that that makes you feel part of a smaller community in a much broader organization where you truly are getting the best of the best when it comes to pricing and those type of things and resource availability. So the easiest way for me to explain it is, though we are all very similar in nature, SagePoint, for example, we offer all affiliation options. So whether you want to report directly into the home office, whether you are part of an OSJ currently and the whole group comes over, or you want to come on board and be part of an OSJ because you want that smaller team feel, or you just want to be standalone, we offer all of those options. So each firm is kind of unique, but we each drive our own culture and the type of advisor we want within our organization. And I know that there's been a lot of improvements. Part of what I got to see out in Arizona comes from your new partnership with Reverend. I apologize for saying Lightyear, but I believe Reverend essentially bought out Lightyear in that transaction, right? Yes. So there was really no change from from the advisor's point of view. It was just basically changing who owns the shares. What kind of things have you seen improve when Reverend came in as a partner? Because that's really what advisors want to hear. Like, hey, great. That's awesome that you got this new partner with you, but how is it helping me? So for the advisors that are on your platform today, What kind of improvements have they seen? One of the biggest improvements I've seen is the cultural improvements. So a lot of times in private equity, it's a year-over-year budget. This is our snapshot for this year. This is our spend, and this is done. With reverence, and they really understand our business and are really wanting to make advisor group and all of the firms within advisor group best in class, best customer service, best technology. And so when we are looking at capital investment from them, it is a span of three to five years. So we're not going in and saying we need X amount only for this year. We're saying our end goal for technology, for example, is to have an end-to-end digital experience, not only for the advisor, but for the client. Well, you can't do that if you're running a budget on just a 12-month period. You have to be able to look long-term, and especially in our industry, because there is no solution out there that offers that. So if you're building it and you're bringing in your own programmers and capabilities, you got to be sure that you have the backing of your owner in order to invest the capital to do that. So just recently, over the last couple of years, the spend invested in technology, also the spend invested in bringing on talented individuals within the organization that can change the organization as our industry's changing. You know, I don't even like the word broker-dealer anymore. SagePoint, you know, we have our corporate RIA. We also have independent RIAs affiliated with us. But if you look at our overall asset holdings and our overall revenue, we are an RIA first and a broker-dealer second. So using the term broker-dealer to me, it's not fitting anymore. We really truly are a wealth management firm. Reverence embraces that and they understand it. They also understand that it's not about us. It's about the voice of our customer. 
meaning the advisors and then the advisors customers. And that's why technology is so important, especially in today's environment. We have to get the technology on par and then be able to provide that service where if an advisor calls in, they feel like, okay, I got the best in class service that I can possibly get. And they're fully committed to it a lot, which is great. It's great to see. So very different than in previously. Great. So you made a comment about how things are changing in today's environment and technology and the needs in today's environment. So let's talk about today's environment. I was on a call with somebody before this call and they were asking me about how do I see advisor movement either slowing down, picking up, going sideways? Basically, what do I see happening here with the advisor mentality? And sort of like you, I got into the business. I started as an advisor in 1996 officially but I was an intern in 94. So for two years, I was an intern, but registered in 96. I started producing in, in 1999, 2000, sort of like you. I had a big enough book of business that the tech bubble hurt just a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> it was rough. You know, so I've been through a couple of different markets just like you. And so from your position today, with what you see happening here, how do you see, uh, or do you see happening right now within the space in terms of advisor movement given what we see in the marketplace, right? And then we'll convert that into why do you think SagePoint is a great destination for those types of advisors? You know, when I look at the transition that's happening with advisors, I think moving from one firm to another is becoming increasingly difficult. The transition piece of it, in my opinion, is becoming easier. We can move books of business in 30, 60, 90 days now, large books. But the regulatory environment and the, the target that advisors and firms have, I think they will be making it increasingly difficult to move. And we're seeing that right now. DOL PTE, for example, it's going to create more paperwork, more disclosure. Why are you making this move? Is it really in the benefit of the client? Also, coupled with a lot of advisors are afraid to be part of a larger organization. Maybe afraid is not the right word. But they like the smaller firm feel. They like the intimate setting. And so being part of a large organization, when they think about making a change, they want to be sure, okay, I feel good about this change and it's not going to change again. What I see happening in the industry, and we've been seeing it probably over the last five years or so, is the consolidation of small firms. When you think about technology, and I keep saying that because it's so important in our society today but also just the regulatory environment, small firms are finding it increasingly difficult to survive. I think we're at, what, 3,000 broker-dealers right now, somewhere around there. You know, I'm certainly not going to get down to 10, but it's definitely going to be less than 3,000 because I think we were close to 15,000 10 years ago. And when I talk to smaller firms, it is surprising sometimes to me how they've been able to survive as long as they have because the margins are so thin. Yeah, we do that. We work on some M&A and I see that with some smaller broker dealers that we talk to and I'll show them like, hey, listen, I know this is your baby and you built it from the, from the ground up, but if you just were willing to roll into a larger firm, become an OSJ, your folks aren't going to lose you or your brand and all that stuff. I know you don't believe this, but you're going to make more money because their margins are so thin because they're constantly having to hire more compliance people to keep up with FINRA. Personally, I think FINRA has an edict to push some of those folks politely to the door, push them to firms like SagePoint and other firms. And so, but I think that yeah, you, maybe to your point is there's a risk 
with advisors thinking that the destination of a smaller firm is the right way to go, when in reality, they're going to probably end up a couple of years from now having another conversation about, hey, we're being sold. And the decision of where to go is taken out of their hands, theoretically. If they decide where they want to go, they make the decision. But in every situation that I've talked to owners of broker-dealers, they can say that they're trying to do this in the best interest of their advisors. But at the end of the day, they're doing it in the best interest of them as the principal to try to get their money out and all that good stuff. So do you see with the markets being choppy the way they are and having gone through history, you know, like you have and I have, where there was, you know, advisors see they're trying 12s go down. They're trying to figure out how to handle their summer houses and all that stuff when their revenue goes down. My opinion, and I'm curious what you think about it, is my opinion is that in addition to some movement sort of wire to wire, W2 to W2, what we didn't have back in 08 and 09 in 2000 and 2001 as an opportunity for an advisor looking to, I'll just say, recapitalize. The movement to independence wasn't really there back then because there was too much of a gap in terms of tech and service and sophistication and all that stuff. Do you see that change this time around in this next go around here? Yeah, I do. And I think I'm seeing a big change in the generation and what they want in a firm. And so the younger generation that's starting out in the wirehouses today, I feel that they're looking at it as a stepping stone where previous generations, the wirehouse was that lifelong commitment of where I planned on being where I feel like the younger generation, more new to the business is looking at it like, okay, I'm going to do this because I get some benefits today, but ultimately I want to be a business owner. Ultimately, I want to go out on my own. And when we see the markets doing what they're doing to your exact point, I think you're spot on. This is an opportunity for them to say, okay, now I can go out here, get some capital, become potentially my own business owner or join a group but yet I'm going to be able to make substantially more money in some cases doing it this way. I do see that. I also do see us just having an overall transition in the space. When I think about when I got into the industry, I couldn't imagine doing that today, just starting from scratch, going full commission. Here I go. You know, it is difficult. I think that we as an industry need to really start thinking about how do we tap into that next generation of advisors coming in and giving them an avenue to survive. You know, I used to always say when I was recruiting before, and if I would have a new advisor come in that's new to the industry, if you make it three years, you're probably pretty good. If you make it five, you're totally fine. But if you think about that, I'm going to struggle for three years. I may go two months with making $22. That's a little daunting for some advisors. But I also see a shift, you know, back in the day, people would get into the industry and it was like the old Primerica model, buy term, invest the difference. Now they're getting into the industry. They already know, start with reoccurring revenue from the beginning. Don't just sell commissionable products. You need that reoccurring revenue. That is a lot easier to also transition to go independent because that reoccurring revenue is going to follow you. So I think there's a lot of opportunity. The challenge with that, I agree 100% that this industry is missing, that's a huge gap in the business, this next generation, where firms struggle 
is they want the advisor to be building a business as an advisory business because it's good for the firm and all that stuff. They don't give them enough runway to survive. So they put them in a position like, well, wait a minute, I got to pay my bills. So I need to do some annuity business or some transaction business, which isn't good for them in the long run, unless they're doing a recurring, like an L share. And it's always been an issue where firms just don't give these new trainees the runway to really build a business. And the firm that can figure that out, the firm that's willing to have the patience with maybe losing some money a little bit, is going to end up having a great next gen of advisors to take over their practices. I agree with you wholeheartedly. So we're getting a little long on time. I wanted to just really pick your brain for a minute on in this environment as an independent leader who was an independent financial advisor and a business owner, what do you think advisors should be doing right now that's going to pay dividends in terms of growing their book of business? Like what are the like the three things if you were an advisor right now, what would you be doing to grow your business? You know, from my perspective, I will always say that my coach throughout my career, professionally and personally, are integral. We think we get to a certain point and don't need coaching anymore, but we do. With our industry changing, the frustrations in our industry, to me, coaching is of utmost importance. So to never stop being coached by somebody else to achieve your goals. The other thing too is, is I think as a business owner, you have to decide where's your area of expertise? And this is the time to really take a look at it. Do you want to be the CEO of your company or do you need to hire a CEO for your company and do what you do best, meeting with just clients? And or if you're an asset manager, you only want to do the asset management. I think a lot of times entrepreneurs, we have a tendency to want control of everything because we think we do it best and it takes too much time to teach somebody else. I might be working on that as we speak. I'm not really sure. I am too. <laughs> Delegation is a horrible thing. But really taking a look at what are you best at and then not being afraid to spend the money to hire in the areas that maybe you're not as good at. And take a step back. I had to do this myself, lose the ego and say, I might think I'm good at this, but somebody else can do it a heck of a lot better. I think that would be my second thing. And then the third thing I think is to really look at the most successful practices that I'm seeing today are ensemble teams. You know, that does go back to looking at your areas of weakness, but it's also a way to bring in the next generation as well, is really working as a true team where your team has ownership and the growth of the business. Each person has their area of expertise or sometimes a couple individuals. So for example, you have two staff members that focus solely on financial planning, no e-money or whatever financial planning software fully integrated they're licensed, they can even speak to clients. Then you have your asset managers. Then you have somebody who's actually running the business, the CEO of the business. Then you have people that are really strong with the relationships with the clients. And again, it's just taking each individual strength and you grow the business exponentially. I also think the end client then looks at it like I'm working with an organization, not just a person. So if something happens to one person, I'm still going to be okay. With our advisors aging, I think it's important to begin to think about that. I think those are great things. I think the coaching thing, I think people don't understand that. If nothing else, to hold you accountable. You know, when you go independent, I find that advisors don't have that person holding them accountable anymore. And 
And there's so many choices, so many things you can do that you can end up doing nothing. It's like, well, what do you want to do? I don't know. Well, what am I allowed to do? Well, you can do almost anything. Just don't break any rules. And so coaching is really a key one. And I also think speaking from personal experience, all kidding aside, you know, doing what you do best and really good advisors, I'll say salespeople, but we all started off selling and chasing and bringing in new accounts. And you get to a business that's got a billion dollars or whatever, all of a sudden you're spending a lot of your time, not on the things that made you money because you have no choice. And a good business owner like yourself recognizes, go spend money. It's not that hiring a a CFO or somebody, you know, I, I hired a CFO. I didn't look at what I was paying him as a CFO as an expense. I looked at in him, I looked at it as investment in me. I'm making an investment in me so I don't have to do the bookkeeping and all the stuff that requires me so I can do these calls. And I can, and it's the same thing for a financial advisor. They're, most of them are the best in front of clients and in prospects. So figure out who you have to add to your team so you can do more of that. Last thing, um, this is the opportunity to really pitch age point. If I'm a financial advisor and I'm considering going independent, why consider SagePoint as my destination of choice? So as I stated earlier on, I think advisor group speaks for itself in the shared services, economies, the scale, why that can be beneficial to an advisor. When it comes to SagePoint, for me, it's about the leadership within SagePoint. I have a great leadership team. The voice of the customer and advocating for the advisor is number one priority. The primary focus of SagePoint relationship management is number one. It doesn't mean you're always going to get the answer you want, but I train my teams and I'm very, very transparent and honest about why we can or cannot do something. And I have found that if you can speak to an advisor about the why and then try and find a how, maybe not the how that they wanted, but try to get there, they're going to respect that versus just telling them no. And it's a culture that I drive here at SagePoint tremendously. We focus on the voice of our customer. We focus on leading with them first, looking at the outside in versus the inside out, which is not something you historically see. So I think that has a lot to do with the leadership here at SagePoint and my leadership team. And I'm very, very proud of that. I can attest to that when I ask you that same question, a little bit of a different way, maybe I liked your answer. And, and I would say that you are one of those reasons because I work with lots of firms. Very few of them have a financial advisor, an independent financial advisor who is an entrepreneur at the helm. And I think the fact that you understand that one point that you just made about, listen, they may not like the answer that they get. But if you give them the answer and explain the reason why, and then work on trying to find a solution, only a financial advisor would understand why that works. So that is a testament to who you are at the firm. And, and I really applaud you for that. Anyway, I appreciate your time. This, you know, this is great. There's so much more we could talk about, but I always try to just keep these nice and tight and full of content. And there's lots of things that my audience can pull away from this. That was really helpful, including why they should be talking to SagePoint if they're thinking about making a move. So thank you very much for your time. Is there a website, if an advisor is interested, where they can go to find information out on SagePoint specifically? Yeah, if you just go to joinsps.com, you'll have all the information on SagePoint there. Awesome. Great. I appreciate this.
yeah, that'd be that'd be great. Go there. And of course, they can all reach out to me and my firm. You can email me at frank at eliteconsultingpartners.com. You can check out our website, eliteconsultingpartners.com, which is where our podcast will be. It'll also be on iTunes. And uh, you see a great video of us, of Desiree, maybe not me, and her cute baby in the background there on our YouTube channel, which is Advisor Talk with Frank LaRosa, of course. So uh, Desiree, thank you very much for your time. I appreciate it. Have a great holiday weekend coming up. I hope you enjoy it. I continue to look forward to having some of our clients join SagePoint. Yeah, thank you so much for the opportunity, Frank. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to Advisor Talk with Frank LaRosa. If you're looking for more advice or solutions on any topics in the financial services industry, or you just want to subscribe to our podcast, head on over to EliteConsultingPartners.com slash podcasts. Mm-hmm.